and welcome to this month's Archimedes, the evidence-based podcast of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. This month, we'll be having a discussion about an aspect of critical appraisal and then summaries of the two Archimedes questions in this month's issue. This time, it's to do with the safety of ACE inhibitors in heart failure in children and also the need for three thick film things on returning travellers when you're suspecting malaria. But first, the critically appraised topic. In the eyes of those who are statistically minded, re-validation will make them think of the process of assuring a prediction model, which might be prognostic, diagnostic or risk-based, to check that it's still valid, uh, perhaps after a calibration. Model in this setting really just means a fancy equation. It's, it's maths machinery rather than those tiny die-cast toys with the little tiny wheels and the detail of the steering wheels and stuff. Anyway, yeah, that's what a model is here. Uh, to, to clinicians, though, revalidation normally just means paperwork and tears. Now, the basic idea of statistical validation is to check that a prediction model, for example, a way of estimating the prognosis of a patient that's been admitted to PICU, is still accurate, and the factors that are in this model work to discriminate between the high-risk cases and the low-risk cases. It might be, for example, if overall survival has improved, that the model still works, but the sites, the sort of estimate of survival, overall needs rating a little. Alternatively, it might be that the factors which were prognostic in the past just aren't discriminating now. They don't really tell the difference. For example, we may have approved our ability to ventilate, to control blood pressure, or fix failing kidneys, and that was improvement further than we could before. And so in those cases, the model doesn't work so well because those factors don't any longer predict death in a way that they did in the past. If you tweak the model around for these things, these are called recalibrations. Now, if you think about it, the first time the model was produced, it was calibrated to be correct, and we needed then to validate it to make sure it was right. And now we've recalibrated it, we should need to revalidate it. And then if we tweak it a bit more, do we need to reassess our tweaking a bit? But but really, that'll just spiral into a madness of unending fiddle-checking, won't it? I think that, like most things in life, there is a balance to be struck. Practically, we have to believe that we can use the model, the maths machinery, if it's any good. But we have to recall that we need to check it every now and then to make sure that it works well still. And so, there are some very clever folks who will periodically check things like calibration and shift things about, like the PIM score, which is a model for predicting mortality on paediatric intensive care, and then produce era-specific modifications such as PIM2 and the imaginatively named PIM3. Some diagnostic models, where you're judging whether or not somebody has a disease, are suggested to be calibrated against the local baseline rate of those disease states, and that's a way of sort of compromising medicine and maths. Now, as a user of evidence, the key parts seem to be, as always, check that the methods for making and validating a model are sound, assess that the outcomes that they're predicting are relevant and meaningful to your patients and make sure that you can apply it to your study population. That is, that it fits, roughly speaking, with the sorts of patients that you look after. The first topic we have this month is on ACE inhibitors in infants in in heart failure. Not asking do they work or not, assuming that they do, but what is the safety of it? 
Now, Marik van der Mullen and colleagues, Marik's from Rotterdam in the Netherlands, but the colleagues are from a huge group from London, Budapest, Vienna, Dusseldorf, Utrecht, Nijmegen, Salzburg, Belgrade, and even in Belgium. They all worked to assess the question based around the scenario of a one-year-old who's been diagnosed with a dilated cardiomyopathy and needs to start an allopril, an ACE inhibitor, for heart failure, but they're unclear about what side effects can be realistically be expected to be seen. They went away and they searched the, ev- the literature extensively. There were no systematic reviews, and when they went through the whole of Embase and Medline, they found 415 things that might be relevant, took it down to 14 that definitely were relevant in that they were related vaguely to adverse events and ACE inhibitors in children, but only seven of those studies actually reported the adverse events in any detail. This was on about a 1,000 patients who'd had enalapril, 400 or so that had had captopril, only 4 that had had lisinopril, and 35 that had switched from captopril to enalapril. The duration of treatment ranged from 1 day to 3 years, and what the group did is they looked carefully at the sort of quality that was coming out of them, and then summarised the outcomes in various sections. So, for example, within this group of patients, death did occur. It it was noted that you could be on an ACE inhibitor and die, but it was never ascribed to the ACE inhibitor, but the underlying conditions for which the children were taking those ACE inhibitors. It was noted that renal failure, or some form of renal impairment, I should say, was present in somewhere between 0 or 29% of patients in the various studies looking at, ACE, uh, looking at adverse effects of ACE inhibitors. However, that's complicated further by the fact that there were multiple diagnostic criteria ranging from the full KIDGO type uh, renal impairment criteria down to was there oligouria without being really good definition of what that meant hypotension, which I guess you'd expect to be a potential side effect given that these are antihypertensive agents, did occur, but again, wide range, some studies reporting no hypotension, some reporting 19% hypotension, and unclear again as to what extent of hypotension was being reported and whether there was a dose modification that then sorted that hypotension out. In one instance, inotropes were used, but again, not entirely certain if that was entirely exclusively related to the ACE inhibitor use. Hyperkalemia, rising potassium, was noted between 0 again and 13% of cases, but in no cases was there any cardiac arrhythmia, and they all these, these cases resolved without the need for dialysis. Surprisingly to me, because if you ask me, ACE inhibitor, side effect, cough. Mm-mm. Cough was only noted in one patient on enalapril or only reported as an adverse event in one patient in an allopril. And that's a thousand or so patients that were there. That's relatively rare, which makes me wonder, is it truly very rare, or is it just underreported because it's so well known and such a benign finding? The risk factors for developing side effects from ACE inhibitors appear to be unrelated to the actual dose that was given. It was clear that kids had more side effects than adults, or a greater proportion of kids had side effects reported on them than did in the adult studies, and the things that made it a little bit more likely to happen were if the child was younger or lighter in the neonatal range uh, and had some form of increased risk of dehydration, for example, very poor intake or diarrhoea. 
they summarised their paper by saying that there are side effects of ACE inhibitors and being aware of them and watching out for them and modifying dosing and treatment when you find them is probably the way to go forwards because these are effective drugs. Our other case this month is of the need for three clear blood films for a returning traveller from malaria. Now this is Isabel Wilson and colleagues, again spread around the place, but this time just within the UK. The colleagues are from Bart's, Great Ormond Street, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and Alder Hay in Liverpool. Their case is uh, based around a four-year-old who attends the ED with a three-day history of fever and some loose stool, having returned from Nigeria a week previously. The kid on examination is actually currently afebrile and looks really very well. Blood was sent and a film was done, which was negative, and a rapid diagnostic test for malaria was also done, which was negative. And and the type of RDT, the type of rapid diagnostic test, was one that was of the histidine-rich protein 2 spotting variety. The patient was discharged, but was meant to return at 24 and 48 hours to repeat the tests, just to make sure they really didn't have malaria. And you wonder if this is diagnostic overkill. Again, they went away and searched the literature to look at it and found two Cochrane reviews uh, addressing in primarily adults the diagnostic utility of different sorts of diagnostic tests for both falciparum and non-falciparum malaria. And then they went to the primary literature, 378 potential hits from Sinal, Embase and Medline, bringing it down to 60 maybes and in the end only five included. One study was very clear in that it definitely included children, although it didn't report them separately. And when you put all the information together from these studies, it demonstrated that the rapid diagnostic tests were extremely sensitive for falciparum malaria, particularly the ones that are based around the histidine-rich protein 2, the HRP2 type tests. There are some other ones, it seems, um, possibly older tests that are based around LDH that are less sensitive. Now, I'm sure you'll all recall that a highly sensitive test means that of those patients who have the disorder, so in this case, the patients with malaria, they will come back positive on the test. Now, what that means is that if your test is negative, the patients with malaria do not have negative tests. So a negative test is very effective at ruling out a diagnosis of malaria, particularly falcipium malaria in this instance. What was noted was that if you put together one of these HRP2 rapid diagnostic tests and a single negative blood film, that is essentially good enough to rule out malaria in a child who is otherwise well. And so it would be appropriate to discharge them without need to come back again unless they hit various elements of continuing to get worse, deteriorating in some other way. The sorts of safety netting you would do with anybody else that you discharge from the ED. The authors also conclude, though, that because there can be some missed cases, if a child presents not like this, not a, not a currently afebrile or, or only very mildly febrile, well child, but if this child is persistently febrile or unwell, then it would be very reasonable to undertake a second screen for malaria and possibly a third screen, and all the while investigating for alternative causes of the fever and of the illness that presents in front of you. All very sensitive stuff and will hopefully lead to fewer patients having to come back time and time again for malaria screens that are not required. 
Now, you might be thinking that the side effects of ACE inhibitors or the use of HRP2RDTs in the exclusion of the diagnosis of malaria are not the sorts of things that you do every day, but that you have a more bread-and-butter paediatric question that needs to seek evidence to get the answer. Well... What you should do is crack on and write your own Archimedes. Then you too may be being shone in podcasty lights or maybe taking part in an interview to talk about your piece. Submit it via the website. The instructions are on there. You can get advice from a friendly group of editorial type people. Honestly, we're very friendly. Nobody has ever come back and said we aren't friendly and survived. Get the address and stuff off the website. Get in touch with us, write your own Archimedes, and then it might be you being discussed next month on the Archives of Diseases of Childhood Archimedes podcast. <laughs>